Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and welcome to season two of the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with strong leaders from all over the globe. Here, you will learn from peers you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolbox. Because whether you're a C-suite executive or a first-time entrepreneur, we all contend with challenges and there's always room for improvement if we choose to seek it. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Smiling ear to ear for my guest today, because I have found yet another fine Canadian who is a heart-centered leader. And again, you know, social media offers us so many borderless opportunities to meet like-minded, heart-centered people. And, and that's how I crossed paths with our guest today. So let me introduce you to Tyler Foley. He is an accomplished film and stage performer, and he's been acting in film and television since he was six years old. I bet you there's going to be a great story coming from there. He has appeared in productions, including Freddy vs. Jason, Door to Door, Carrie, and the musical Ragtime. He is passionate about helping others confidently take the stage and to impact the audience with their stories. Tyler's currently the managing director of Total Buy, Total Buy-In, and he is also the author of the number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. So buckle up and get ready because I would love to welcome, a warm welcome to fellow Canadian, Tyler Foley. Kev, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, I got goosebumps. I just, I read your bio and it's like, he's Canadian and we're on the heels of the Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. So it's, it's October and it's fall and it feels like we're having summer weather. So just a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for spending time with me. Oh, and I, I'm, I love how just diverse a nation we live in because where you're having wonderful fall colors and beautiful uh, weather, summer-like, uh, we are definitely in the grips and the throes of fall pushing winter. Uh, it'll be snowing here in about uh, 48 hours. So, but I'm looking forward to that too. There, there's you're, no sympathy coming because you get monsoon. So no, no sympathy from Ontario. Well, I am just excited to dive in and ask you some leadership questions. So I am going to start if you are ready. Absolutely. You have been an accomplished film and stage performer since the age of six. And that's such a tender age. I, I have my schooling in neuroscience and I know at the age of six, that is usually by the end of age six, where social development is, is well-developed, if you will. So tell us where your love of the stage and theater came from, or was there influence, or give us the backstory to how this love happened so early in your life as a young boy. I was very blessed to get to be on stage very early, and one of the precursors to it was my father actually passed away when I was six years old. And when you're six, um, it's, it's really hard to process the finality of that. You know, even we, we had counseling for a couple of years after my father's passing, but it, it was really more for my mom than us. But I didn't 
openly grieve or outwardly grieve my father's passing. Cause again, it was a hard thing to understand at six years old. And I think my mom was a little concerned about that, about the uh, emotional withdrawal as it would have appeared to her. So she was looking for an outlet for me. And, you know, as you well know, growing up in Canada, usually that means hockey, but I was also a tiny wee lad. I mean, I was very small. I'm still a very small man. I'm like five, seven, about 135 pounds. So uh, there's not a lot to me. And my uncle actually worked for the city. And right across from City Hall was the main theater district for uh, Calgary, where I grew up. And he would always take his lunch. Uh, he, he's uh, notorious for dining out. And one day he was, uh, I overheard a conversation from the casting director for one of the main theater companies that they were struggling finding a tiny Tim. And I believe the, the phrase that caught her, his attention was when the casting director said, how hard could it be to find a small child to, you know, say three lines. And so he inquired, he's like, well, what, what are you looking for and what do you need? And somehow he got her number. I got in touch with the casting process. Um, and the show at that point had already been cast, uh, but they were struggling finding, finding the role of Tiny Tim. And I got to do it. I will never forget the first time that I heard an audience clap at something that I had done. You know, and it's an iconic line that you get to deliver to, right? Yeah, end of the play, you're up on Bob Cratchit's shoulder. And you get to, you just beam to the crowd and be, God bless us, everyone. And as soon as you say it, every like you just lit up right now. Like, you know, like it just brings a smile to your face and the crowd just erupted in applause. And, and, and at that point I was, and I was, there was no going back. I was born a performer, like even before I was six years old, I, I was that kid who would, sing and dance in front of the family at family gatherings, right? Like Thanksgiving and people would come and, and I would be putting on shows. And I remember receiving a, a magic kit uh, when I was like three or four years old and doing little magic shows for the family and, and stuff like that. So I was, I performance was in my blood, but it was when you first, you know, getting exposed to it so young and that just triggered, it just triggered a thing for me. And at that point I was, I, I have sought stages for the rest of my life. And in fact, it's, it's influenced the majority of uh, my leadership skills and everything that I do it comes from my love of performance. Well, and, and what I love about that, and it's going to lead into my next question. I'm going to, I'm going to bump question two to question three, because I want to, I want to kind of anchor this back. I think about all of the transferable skills that you learned from age six, being on that stage and, and just the element that fear never had an opportunity to be present. It was in your toolkit, but you were taught artistic interpretation, playing a character or whatever it may be on the stage, the theater production. Tell me how all of those transferable skills has led you to impact organizations? Because I'm sure you quite eloquently can deflate the elephant in the room. And I'm going to say with heart-centeredness, be able to deliver some constructive criticism 
but maybe in a bit of a theatrical, artistic way. So kind of take us there of how you unpack that and some of the feedback that you've had, because I just find it fascinating. Well, I think one of my great gifts is audience analysis. Uh, One of the other great gifts that I learned young being in performance was self-awareness. Being truly, truly at my core aware of what my body is doing, what my emotions are doing, where I'm at. And that will feed any situation. And you're right. There are a lot of times where I've needed to diffuse a room. But growing up in theater gave me a really good ability to, A, think on my feet, uh, do improvisation. I mean, theater sports is one of the greatest things that any leader could ever do ever. I strongly encourage it. And in fact, a lot of the workshops that I do start with some form of theater sport challenge. Uh, They're great icebreakers, but they loosen people up. But I had the ability to improv early and I had the ability to read an audience early because no two audience are the same, particularly you're doing a run four, six, eight weeks. Uh, The longest show that I ever did ran for over a year. And when you're doing, you know, a year long run, eight performances a week, each audience comes in is unique that instructs every performance, it's unique. Yes, you're saying the same words over and over and over again, oftentimes in the same manner over and over again, but there's always something unique each time that is different, that sets it apart from any other show. And that will then inform the next show because you remember, hey, this thing landed really well, and then you do that. And so for me, the the greatest gifts that I got in my toolbox is, again, that emotional intelligence of being able to not only know where I am, where I'm sitting, but to be able to read the room and know where the audience is sitting, and then have the improvisational skills to go off book and go off script. Maybe it's not in the presentation that I was going to do, but we need to address this thing right here, right now. And then having additional skills to and training further on to know what the right way to address those situations are. I know my default is always self-deprecating humor initially, and then go from there. Well, it's so fascinating to me because I I use humor a lot as well. And I, I always believe there's enough room for a little positivity, a little bit of lightness and laughter, I think is always the best medicine, regardless of what we're doing. And I just, I find it fascinating and I can really see and feel how you've taken those skills and, and brought it in to help others. So my third question has permanent residency on the show. Share with us what imperfections Tyler brings to his heart-centered leadership. Well, again, performance, it's, it's both, you know, my superpower and my kryptonite because I am theatrical and I know that I definitely react in a very grandiose way. I try very hard to contain it and be, you know, be professional, be reserved. But I, I mean, everything in me just screams out, make it a show. And I know particularly with my team, I will go off on tangents and rants and all kinds of uh, very verbose and uh, wordy and lengthy diatribes that oftentimes they need to decipher, first of all, what am I thinking? What is the actual issue? And, uh, and how much of the language that I've used was necessary? 
but I know that I wouldn't change it either because I'm passionate about what I do. And I think that is heart-centered leadership. You have to, like, I feel it in my heart when I'm, well, you know, we know when we're on fire, right? And so if I'm angry with the situation, I feel it in my heart because how can I serve if this thing is broken, right? And if I'm excited about how something's doing, we just launched a Facebook group literally yesterday, uh, put hit live on it. And our team was expecting five to 10 signups. That was the target for the day. New group. Uh, we just want to get five to 10 people into it. Um, we had a really nice chain and a sequence set up to welcome everybody in. Uh, we we're going to record personal videos for each one. You know, founding member, congratulations for being the first through the gate. 28 people later, it's a lot of videos to do. <laughs> and I was so excited because it was a real challenge to try and figure out how, like, even though there are only one or two minutes of welcoming people, I, in my head, I had blocked out, you know, 10, 10 spots most, that's 20 minutes. And, and we almost tripled that. So it was, you know, I was excited about that. And my team could tell too, because as soon as they were coming in and we were seeing the thing and we had a call at the end of the day, everybody on the call could just see, I was just beaming you know i have my theater space that is set up it's actually a, a stage audition area that i use for my zoom calls because again actor and performer this is also where i audition from so i have this big huge space that i can move around and i couldn't contain myself i was i was jumping up and down you know there was there's no seat here like i'm just i'm free flow movement but again right like even now i'm on a tirade because i get going and it's really hard to rein it in. So if there was if there was one flaw that I bring as far as heart-centered leadership goes, it is my my grandiose nature when it comes to performance and exuberance in everything that I do. Whether I'm happy or sad, you know it. Whether good or bad, I definitely wear my emotions on my sleeve. You know where you stand with me at any given moment. Well, and and we can also aka that and uh say that it's your passion and it's visceral. It's, it's deep for you. And that's not a bad thing. Okay. My last question, I'm going to change because like you, I guess I improv a little bit based on the vibe of the interview and want to share with you that I really feel your heart. When you talk about your dad, I was 21 when I lost my dad. So it's interesting at different intervals of our life. You were a young boy at six. I was a young girl at 21. The age doesn't really matter. So my question is, how do you think the loss of your dad at such a young age, combined with landing on the stage and, and finding another love in your life, how do you think it helped you as a young boy to where you are now in your life with the grief and bereavement process? I mean, first of all, the grief and bereavement is different for everyone and everyone processes loss of any kind, any kind uh, differently. And I think that's one of the great gifts that I got was understanding that loss is not necessarily centered or directly related to death. That loss is loss. We grieve loss. So my wife last year worked for the same company for 13 years, had received an award for being employee of the year at the beginning of 2020 and in june was let go because they you know they had to downsize 
And it hit her like a ton of bricks. And, and she was like, I don't understand why I'm so upset. And, you know, and she went through the whole, all the stages of grief from <laughs> rage to sorrow, you know, like it, all through all of them. And I said, uh, sweetie, you're, you're, you're grieving. And I think being exposed to death that early on, um, and we went through a sequence too in my family, like my father passed and then my great grandmother passed. And then we had an uncle pass. And like, I rem- I was at more funerals between the age of six and eight than I think most people have experienced in their life in, you know, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, it, it was, it, it felt like rapid succession. And I think because of that, you know, it shaped a lot of how I view the world you know, and, and empathy too. Like at six, you know, I just wanted mom to feel good. She was, she was so melancholy for a year or two and rightfully so, you know, she lost the love of her life. And now she had two children to raise on her own. And even the circumstances around my father's death, he passed away in an automobile accident, uh, 11 days into starting a new restaurant. My father was actually an educator and a teacher and he'd taken a sabbatical to, start a restaurant and chase his entrepreneurial dream and they had signed life insurance policy that day but it hadn't gone to the underwriter so he he passed away literally with no insurance my mom was left with nothing absolutely nothing and you know that that could have broke her but it didn't and i think that's one of the great gifts too that i saw the resilience in my mom and i saw that life happens for us, not to us. And everything about that shaped who I was. I would not be where I am today if it weren't for that. I don't know that I would have found the, the, the stage. I don't know that then I would have had the emotional intelligence that I have because I don't know that I would have been exposed to those tools to truly deeply explore my feelings. I don't know that I would have the minor empathic intuitiveness that I have to really read an audience and feel what other people are feeling. I, my mom would have never dated the musician that she dated when I was in, you know, my formative years of, of 10 to 18. And I don't know that I would have ever been a drummer, you know, like all of these things informed who I am and were, were necessary as tragic as it is with my father's passing. And I will never, ever, ever say that my father's passing was a positive. I don't look for the positives, but what I do look for is the grace in any situation. And I definitely think there is divinity in all of these actions and that I am on the path that I needed to be. And part of that path included my father passing at a very young age. So for all of those reasons, I think um, it has had an impact and will continually resonate for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just in awe of how you framed that. And I've never heard anybody say, I don't look for the positives. I look for the grace. I love that. That that's getting a big heart-centered check mark. That to me is emotional intelligence at its best. And I think it's a it's a, a an important distinction because I think I mean just the word positive has this positive connotation. And when you force somebody to look at a situation and say, "Well, look on the bright side," there especially when you're in the epicenter of it, all you want to do is give a big F you and be like, "No, this is not a thing. This is do you understand what's going on?" And, you know, especially with real tragic events, you know, especially when they're, they're, they're massive. Like I think of September 11th in the world trade centers, like that's a hard thing to look at the positive of that, 
And I'm sure there's people who are going, I don't even know if there was grace in that. And I would argue that there was. As tragic as that event is, it was definitely polarizing and it brought a nation together, a very highly divided nation that has subsequently divided again. But for a moment, you had over 300 million people all on the same page, united beyond religious standpoints, political standpoints, racial standpoints, everyone bound together. And that's that's grace. And uh, I definitely wouldn't say that the loss of over 2000 lives was has a positive but i think there's grace and divinity in what happened absolutely it's one of those dates you can say to anybody and they know exactly where they were and what they were doing hey i'm going to switch gears now and ask you my fab 4 these are four rapid questions we just want to know what's sitting on the top of that artistic brilliant mind of yours here we go tell us something we don't know about you Oh, my life is an open book. Almost everything that everybody knows, uh, they know. I have a wicked caffeine intolerance. I can't, I can't have any caffeinated beverages at all, or I will have severe insomnia. So uh, my favorite kind of cheat luxury is to, and you will understand because you're north of the border, is a, is a Tim Hortons ice cap. I absolutely love them. <laughs> And when my wife and I, one of my favorite things that my wife and I do all the time, we love road trips. We are a family that drives and we will go anywhere, literally get into the truck, pick a cardinal direction and just drive that way until we find something fun to do. But before we can go, there's a Tim Hortons that is four blocks from the house and we have to stop at the Tim's. My wife has to get a large double double and I have to get an ice cap. The problem is if I get that ice cap for that road trip, I will not sleep that night. Uh, between three and four. And it's a thing that I've really had to be conscious of uh, limiting my caffeine intake. So that's one that I haven't shared, but there, there's a whole bunch and I am literally an open book. There are no, there aren't a lot of secrets. There aren't a lot of things that people don't know. <laughs> well, I have, I haven't had that one and you know, we are Canadian, eh? We, we like our Tim Hortons. <laughs> <laughs> Love our Tim Hortons. Okay. Second question, name a book that really, really changed you. The Dilbert Future by Scott Adams. You don't even have to finish the question. It was. It had the biggest and okay. most. Okay, I, I knew you were going to have one. Yeah, it had the biggest and most profound impact on my life. Uh, Scott Adams. Uh, Scott Adams is is a just an absolute genius. In fact, my favorite podcast episode that I've ever heard ever uh, was between him and Tim Ferriss on Tim Ferriss's podcast show. And Scott Adams, just how he sees the world, is unique and wonderful. And I loved the Dilbert comics because I come from a family of, of engineers, you know, very analytical minded people. So the Dilbert comics make me laugh. And when I first moved out to Vancouver, I would fly back to visit my mom regularly. And I picked up a, a copy of the Dilbert Future in uh, airport bookshop just to read on the flight, thinking that it was just going to be a series of, of comics. And it was for the majority of the book, but the very last chapter, Scott Adams, um, he would introduce every chapter because each chapter had a theme of, you know, what was going to be explored in that one. And it was quite funny reading to it. And then the last chapter, he's like, you're expecting a punchline and it won't come. And he started talking about affirmations and how he used affirmations and how Dilbert was actually a construct for him to prove that affirmations work because he was not a cartoonist, trained hypnotherapist, and I can't remember what else he did uh, prior to to becoming a syndicated cartoonist, but he literally wrote it down and made it happen as as an affirmation just to test the affirmation process. 
as soon as I started learning that, and even the way that he described how he uses affirmations as a form of visualization and why visualization works and, and the way that he explained it, he said, movement in film is an illusion, which instantly spoke to me. I'm like, yes, of course, as somebody who has been in film and television for basically all my life, uh, I totally get 24 frames per second, 30 frames per second that, you know, it's still images, there's blur, blah, 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 blah. And he goes on to explain. Um, now, imagine if you took a roll of film, a movie film, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of images, still images, and you cut them up and you just threw them on the floor. You had to pick each one up and look at it to go through and get that illusion of movement. Now you have to start picturing where the next one is. You have to start forecasting forward. And I went, yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. And he's like, so imagine that that's your life. You can future cast. So you pick the frame that you're going to. And if you don't like that frame, you go to another one. And then as soon as he said that, I started thinking of my own experience. Um, I've been a voracious reader all my life. I've loved books um, since the first one that I could pick up, you know, six years old. Uh, especially having to start to read scripts too. Like initially I couldn't read scripts and my teacher had to to record them on a recorder for me. And, and that always bugged me that I was reliant on her to be able to learn my work. And so as soon as I could really figure out how to read well, I just kept reading and reading and reading. And I loved those choose your own adventure books, but I would always go to the back of the book to figure out how to, how to get the good thing, right? I wanted the best outcome. And then knowing where the back page was, you started flipping through those ones until you got the best story that you could. And, and so when Scott Adams gave this analogy of picking your frames, I was like, it's just like in Choose Your Own Adventure when I would pick my own destination. But you needed to know what the end result was. And all of this stuff came together. And that book, more than any other, uh, influenced my growth, my self-development, my understanding of the world, my own worldview how I use affirmations and further understanding that affirmations alone don't help. And, you know, I look at the book and the movie, the secret and go, Oh man, are you missing a whole chunk there? Good start. But there's so much more to that premise that needs to be implemented, even influenced down to my decision to become a Mason and uh, really dive into personal growth and development and become a better man. Like all of those things I can look back on and know that that was picked up in an airport bookstore back in 1998. It's a great story. And, and, you know, we all have those books. Okay. My third question is, tell us your favorite meal. Oh, it's got to be craft dinner. <laughs> As, how, how did I even know you were going to say that? <laughs> if it's not craft dinner, it's a hot dog. It's one of the two. I'd have to ask my wife. We'd have to go back and track and see which one uh, I choose more often. But honestly, if I had to do a coin flip, I don't know, maybe it is a hot dog, but I don't know that's a full meal. Craft See, that's the thing. To me, a hot dog is a snack. A hot dog is my favorite snack, but craft dinner is a meal. And I think it drives my wife insane because I am that guy because I'm a guy. So I will cook it in the pot and then just eat the whole thing out of the pot. And I will eat the whole box. I think it's supposed to be three servings. It's the K, it's the KD way, right? I know. It's the KD way. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely my favorite. Well, I'm going to close out the show with my fourth question. But before I do, I just want to say that I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. And I've really enjoyed having you on the show. And it's nice to meet another like-minded, heart-centered, passionate fellow Canadian and I look forward to more conversations. So thank you for sharing your time, your expertise, but more importantly, your heart with me today. 
Oh, Deb, it was my joy to be on the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I, as I said, you know, it's always nice when we can collaborate north of the border now that everything has, as you said, opened up globally. It's still kind of fun to be able to chit chat with people in your own backyard. So thank you so much. Absolutely. So we're going to close out the show with my fourth question. And I'd like you to finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Ooh, I would have to say heart-centered leadership is truly leading, not from yourself and not even in service of others, but in service of the whole. So both you and the people that you're leading are in alignment. And I, th- I, I think um, when I think heart-centered leadership, um, I actually think of the study of heart math and having head and heart in alignment and the electromagnetic re- resonance that comes with that when our heart and our head are in alignment, the, the actual graphing of the EKG and, and, and how you can see the sinusoidal waves sync up and when they are in sync, how the electromagnetic resonance that our body naturally puts off expands and how that has influence over the other electromagnetic resonance within a room, aka human beings. Fact of the matter is, and I, I, I love doing this experiment, especially when we do it on a format like this, where it's podcast, where none of us can see each other and you and I are you know, a few provinces apart. Take a moment right now, everybody who's listening to this, Deb, me, your listeners, if you're listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast right now, I just want you to take a moment and you don't even have to close your eyes because nobody else can see this. It's just us and the airwaves. I want you to point to wherever north is for you right now. Just point cardinally north. Now I want you to point to wherever west is for you. Now I want you to point to the floor. I want you to point to the ceiling. And now I want you to just point to you, point to you. Now I know because I can see where Deb put her hand and I know where I put my hand, but I want you to say out loud right now, wherever you are, where is your hand placed? And now I'll ask you this. Did you say chest or did you say head? Because I'm willing to bet 99% of the time you pointed to your chest. And if you're pointing to your chest right now, think of that. Your identity of who you are, when I asked point to you, was not your head. It was your heart. And the key to heart-centered leadership to me is to recognize that all of us as human beings identify ourselves, our human being, who we are here in our chest. And it's your job as a leader to ignite the heart and not the mind, because that is how you lead people, because we identify ourselves in our hearts and not our minds. So stop trying to lead the mind and start trying to lead the heart, and you will be one of the greatest leaders in the world. You've been listening to the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm Deb Crow. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review the show. And I'd love it if you'd visit my website at debcrow.com, where you can sign up for my newsletter and get access to the Heart Centered Leadership Toolkit, all free of charge. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you again.